Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. How are you? Good. All right. I like the energy. Um, good. We got it? We got them all? All right. Very, very good. So we are, thanks for doing that, by the way. Appreciate that. That'll help us out. Uh, we are in a sermon series called The Carols of Christmas, where we are looking at some of the songs that we sing during this time of year. And today we're going to look at a line from a song that we sang during worship this morning called uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And so maybe you've forgotten the lyrics to that song. So, so what I'm going to do is just go ahead and sing that song for you again right now. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, we want you to enjoy your experience with us here at the Upper Room. So I won't be singing that song, but uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was, it was written in 1744 by Ch- Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a prolific hymn writer. He also wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So quite a few of his songs have lasted the test of time. But the line we wanted to focus on in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is the line, From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Uh, today, uh, we, we are going to talk about rest. So, so if you want to go to Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, we're going to read about rest. And then this is, and then we're going to talk about it. All right. So Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. This is the Apostle Paul talking about rest. We're going to read the whole thing. It's a lot of scripture, but it's good. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13 says, Paul says, therefore, Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message was heard, they heard, was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath, in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in this passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So hopefully it's pretty obvious from this passage what the writer's trying to get across because ten times in ten verses... We see the word rest. Apparently, a couple thousand years ago, people were dealing with this issue of not prioritizing rest in some way. 
So, I mean, that, that was then. We had the whole rest thing figured out. So that's, that's good, right? Kidding. We live in a culture that's probably more in need of this message than any culture in history. Rest is fundamental to the human condition, fundamental to human joy uh, and fulfillment. Sabbath rest, resting, is one of the Ten Commandments. So you realize what that means. Overwork is in the same list as stealing, adultery, and killing. Right? We, we actually, in America, see busyness. And even, in a way, weariness is a status symbol. When you ask someone how they're doing, oh man, you know, I'm busy, is, is usually one of the first things that someone will say. This is the air we breathe in America. Uh, there's, there's a story of a tiny Mexican village, and on the dock in the village was an American tourist watching fishing boats come in. And off of one of the boats he was watching stepped a, a fisherman with a small, modest catch of fish, but a very nice fish. And the tourist said, how long did it take you to catch this fish? And the fisherman said, oh, not, not long at all. I went out, I caught the fish, I came back in. He said, well, you could have stayed out longer and gotten more. So the fisherman says, this is, this is sufficient to care for the needs of my family. So the tourist said, so, so what do you do with the rest of your time? The fisherman said, well, I, I sleep in late, I play with my kids. Later on, I take a siesta with my wife. In the evening, I go into the village and meet my friends and play the guitar. I live a full life. The tourist said, uh, I have a business degree. I have some ideas that may help you. Uh, if you started your day earlier, you could go out and catch more fish. You could, you could sell the extra fish. And in, in the time, you'd have enough money to buy a bigger boat. If you kept that up over time, you could buy a second boat, a third boat, a fourth boat. And eventually, you'll have this whole fleet of fishing ships. And if you keep at it, you could have your own processing plant right here in the area. And by that time, you'll be bringing in so much money, you could relocate to... New York City or Los Angeles. From there, you could control your vast operations. The fisherman said, how long do you think something like that would take? The tourist said, probably 20, 25 years. But you'll make, you make millions of dollars doing that. The fisherman said, after that, that, then what? The tourist said, well, after that, you can retire. You can find a little village by the coast. Uh, you can sleep in late. You can play with your grandkids, take a siesta with your wife. And in the evenings, you can go play guitar in the village with your friends right this is this is the worst this is the air we breathe in america this work 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 so why are we one of the most overworked societies of all time uh, a lot of people talk about this but i think it might be important to understand why why we are the way we are uh, there are two reasons that are given most for for why we don't rest and the first one is a technological reason technology means our work is more accessible to us we're more accessible to our work all the time, so, so there's like no escape. Technology has also meant the world has shrunk. So whatever you're producing, you're competing in some way with almost everybody else in the world. And for all those sorts of reasons, technology has also made work much more dominant in our lives. So there's, much, there's also a, a cultural explanation. Uh, in traditional societies, you got your identity and your value from being part of a family or a community. So in other words, you got your identity and your value from being a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife, a neighbor, part of a family or a community. We, however, live in a culture that's one of the most individualistic in history. We're also very competitive. So what that means now is your value, your identity is something you have to earn. So you have to, you have to achieve it 
It happens through individual achievement. In our society, you can't feel good about yourself because you're somebody's son or somebody's daughter or somebody's father or mother. That's not how it happens anymore. You have to get out there. You have to do it. That means our relationship with work is completely changed. Uh, at one time, work was just a way in which our, you got your family ahead. But now even family is a way for us to have individual achievement. Your work is the way in which you get your value now. It's the way in which you get your worth by how much money you make or the importance of your work or the things you accomplish. As a result, we're tired. There's never been a more workaholic culture in history. Even when you try and stop and lay down your work for a day, there's this voice inside that says, you're getting behind, there's something you should be doing. There are things you should be doing. So we're, we're, in, we're in trouble as a culture. There's never been a society in which there was more deep restlessness and weariness. Also, there's never been a preacher who needs to listen to his own sermon more than right now. One of the things that's so hard about the Hebrew passage, you probably noticed this, but it's almost impossible to follow the train of thought, right? It's very hard to follow um, when you just kind of listen to it. But you almost have to sit down and look at it and follow it verse by verse. And the reason for that is Paul's using the word rest in a few very different ways. And that's intentional. In fact, in every sentence, the word rest is used in a very different and interrelated way with the sentence before. If you want to be able to untangle it, you need to almost look at it, the different ways in which the word rest is being used. So let's take a look at two of the ways this first talk, this first uh, defines rest. That, that's really all we have time for today. So the first one. In verse 3, where it says, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's Paul referring to God's warning to the children of Israel in the wilderness. If you keep rebelling like this, you're never going to see the promised land. You're never going to enter my rest. Why is God, God calling the promised land a place of rest? Well, remember that the children of Israel were slaves. They were being brought out of Egypt. So, so when they were in Egypt, they were being worked into the ground. So God says in Deuteronomy 15, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God is really saying that when you rest, it's a declaration of freedom. And anyone who overworks is a slave. When you rest, when you put your work down, you're saying, I'm not a cog in the machine. I'm not a slave to the materialistic society in which I live. I'm not a slave to the identity system of my society. I'm not a slave to the identity my society, society demands of me. Rather, I'm declaring the freedom of my identity in God. I'm not a slave. When you truly rest, it's a revolutionary act. So first, rest is a, rest is a declaration of freedom. That's the first way the word rest is used. The second way rest is used here is that, that we're going to look at, look at. in uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. So Paul can't quite remember where he read the scripture, so he says somewhere he has spoken about how God rested from his work. Well, he is referring back to uh, Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the world, then we're told God rested from his work, right? Let me tell you why this is a little strange. Because God 
doesn't get tired. Right? So why is God resting when he can't get tired? We know he never gets tired because all over the Bible he goes, I do not grow weary, I do not need rest, I do not need sleep. He's got this thing all throughout the Bible that says he never gets tired or weary, and now he's going, I'm going to take a day off. He's resting. What in the world does it mean when it says God rested from his work? What it really means when it says God rested is it means he was satisfied with what he, what he was doing. He said it was good. He said it was finished. He was able to lay it down because he was satisfied with what he had done. That's what it means to rest, to truly lay something down. I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is just not work. But true rest is more than that. It's more than just ceasing work. You stop working, but your mind is still telling you, it isn't good. I'm not satisfied. This isn't finished. You won't truly rest. This is why the Sabbath rules of the Bible are so intentional and specific. The Sabbath was designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. The story told by the Sabbath is that God rested and we rest in order to honor the divine in us. To remind ourselves that there is more to us than our work. It's one thing to physically rest. but There's also a deep inner rest, which is being at rest with who you are. The, the deep rest that enables you to put down your work and walk away from it to, and to be completely at rest with who you are. It's an inner thing. And all the vacations in the world can't cure inner restlessness. That's the restlessness underneath the weariness that has to be dealt with. An inner restlessness that is caused by being a slave to social systems or to expectations of others or even your own ridiculous expectations for yourself. Even the expectations that you have for yourself can make you weary. And you have to be able to rest not just physically, but also rest your soul. All right, you might be going, all right, that's, that's nice. You know, I like your little talk there, Pastor Boy, but how am I supposed to do that? Here's what I think. I think there's a, there's a process of checking motivations that we have to go through if we're ever going to get into deep rest. What do I mean? Well, at the very bottom of the passage, <clears throat> verses 12 and 13, there are these verses. And I'd read them before, but I'd never really realized till I actually study them, forget getting ready for this message, how kind of threatening they are. They don't seem to fit with the rest of the passage. So most of the scripture, the beginning and middle is about entering rest and, and peace. And then suddenly there's these verses 12 and 13. And they say, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So verse 12 says the word of God, it's like a sharp sword, it cuts through everything, and it will get all the way down to the place where it will show you your real motivations. The real reason you do everything. Then verse 13 says we will feel completely naked before God. It says you will feel everything has been uncovered and laid bare. That word uncovered is a word that literally means naked. Um, kind of connected to this whole idea about rest is this process we're going to have to go through. It's, 
It's talking about the fact that you will never get into deep rest unless you go through this experience of spiritual nakedness. When it talks about nakedness like this, it's not talking about physical nakedness, all right? Don't go home, take your clothes off and be like, oh, okay, now what? You know, It's, it's spiritual nakedness. It's symbolically for referring back to Genesis. When you get back to Genesis 3, we're told Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They were naked. It wasn't a problem. Why? They were at rest with who they were. They were satisfied with who they were. They saw who they were, and it was good. But Genesis 3 tells us the minute that we, that's really who it's talking about, turn from God, the minute we decided to be our own saviors and our own lords at the deepest level, whether we want to believe it or not, whether it's conscious or not, all human beings know they are completely unfit to be saviors or lords. We are unfit for the job. We make terrible gods. So as a result, we experience, and Adam and Eve experience, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of not being right, a sense of not being acceptable, a deep feeling of spiritual nakedness. And they immediately began to hide from God in the trees. They immediately began to cover up from each other with fig leaves. They were hit with this feeling like, I'm not okay. I have to do something to cover it, something to assure myself and other people I'm okay. And they covered up uh, with fig leaves for the same reason that some people work and work and work and say, if I can just get to that level, then I'll be all right. And then they get there and they aren't all right. This is why some people couldn't imagine not being really good looking. This is, this is why some people can't ever admit that they're wrong or apologize for anything. This is why some people are such, such perfectionists. This is why some people are super negative. What is it? These are fig leaves. You see that? Oftentimes, deep restless, restlessness is you covering something so that others don't realize you aren't God. We may not say that out loud, but you, but you know there's something wrong with you. That's why we put these fig leaves on. It is hiding because of a fear that people might realize we aren't perfect. And it's exhausting. Look at verse 10. It says, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. I think right off the bat we say, well, wait a minute. You know, what's wrong with work? Isn't work good? Yes, work is good. Hard work is good. If you work hard at your job, that's good. If you work hard to love people, that's good. It's hard to love people. It's hard work to love people. If you work hard to be a good person, that's good. It's hard work to be a good person. Why should we need rest from this kind of work? And Paul here is saying in verse 10, there's nothing wrong with rest. What's wrong is sometimes the reason for our work. What's wrong is when our work is self-justifying. When the reason we're being kind to people is so we can feel okay. Or the reason we're trying to be good is so we can say, now people have to treat us well and God has to bless us. When the reason we're working is to get this feeling like, I'm alright. That's self-justifying work and that'll kill your soul. You'll never, ever, ever be satisfied. When the things you're doing, when the reasons you're doing these things is so that you can feel good about yourself and look yourself in the mirror and... Uh, get the respect of other people and get God to bless you. And when your work is self-justifying, you'll never be able to lay it down and say, it's good, it's finished. Never. 
think oftentimes, maybe sometimes, the thing that really is separating you from God and rest is not so much your sins, but the motivations for your good works. I mean, you know, go ahead and repent for the things that are wrong. That's good. But guess what? Pharisees repent for the things that they do wrong. They're still Pharisees. They're still looking down on people, still insecure, still feel like they're better than other people, still anxious, they're still criticizing everybody, they're cutting everybody down so they can feel better about themselves. The real problem is not always what we're doing wrong. It's oftentimes the motivation for doing everything right that's the problem. It's not so much your sin separating you from God and rest. Sometimes it's your good works and the motivations for them. You need to be able to rest in those works. Otherwise, they can be a religious form of self-justification. In the movie Chariots of Fire, have you seen the movie? Anybody seen that movie? Okay. So in the movie, there's a guy named Harold, and there's a guy named Eric. And uh, they, were, they were real historic figures. They really did both run in the Olympics. Uh, but in the, mer- in the movie, Harold is talking about why he runs the 100-yard dash. And he has this, you know, he has this uh, quote. He says that when the gun goes off, he says, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Then Eric is talking about why he runs, and he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I, feel his, when I run, I feel his pleasure. He doesn't say I earn his pleasure. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm trying to please the God who loves me and delights in me and has given me this. One man is running in order to be sure of who he is. The other man is running because he knows who he is. Right? As a result, there are two men working hard. But one man has, is always weary even when he's resting. And the other is always resting even when he's working. Which do we want to be? All right, so how do we get there? Verse 13 has a second word in it that's really pretty, honestly, kind of scary. Uh, notice it says, Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I mentioned uncovered is the word for naked, but that's, there's a second word. This laid bare is the word, let me get this right, trachelizo. You see it kind of has the word trach in there. It actually has a very specific meaning. It actually means to stretch the neck back. Bend the neck back so you could cut and kill. Right? It's how you sacrifice the animals at the temple. You pulled back their necks, you laid bare their necks, and then you slit them. You know what he's saying? Verse 12 and 13 say, according to simple justice, we're in trouble. We're laid bare. But do you know what it says in the next few verses? 14 through 16? It says, therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So wait a minute, suddenly verse 14, 15, 16 talk about this merciful high priest. After talking about being laid bare. What's going on? It is saying, we're not going to be the sacrifice because he already was the sacrifice. Jesus was stripped 
naked on a cross so we could be clothed with love and the glory of God. He was the sacrifice, so we wouldn't have to be the sacrifice. When he died, he said it was finished. What's finished? The, the work every human heart is trying to do, the self-justifying work, he says, I've, I've already done it. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is how we can lay down your work and walk away from it because we're absolutely sure about who you are and you know you're delighted in by the only person in the universe to which you have to give an account. He doesn't say if you work hard enough and you do a good enough job. No. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I don't know if you believe in Jesus or believe he can give you rest, um, but I encourage you to find out, to put your identity in him and let him begin to strip away those invisible fig leaves that we put on to hide us from, hide who we really are, and just stand in him alone, complete. Because how else are you going to find deep rest? How else are you going to know you're loved? How else are you going to know that you're so valuable and so cared for and you don't have to earn it through work? I don't know if you believe this yet, but I urge you to try because it's the way to rest. And I don't know where you are or what you should do. Um, That's where this thing always gets horrifically simplified. You have to know yourself. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then, then change. Change is always the hardest part, right? And the older you get, sometimes the harder it is. But I know for me, I don't want to wake up when I'm 70 and realize I haven't changed in 30 years. That's not who I want to be. Alan Watts has this quote that I love that says, you're under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago. Give yourself permission to change. I know that there's something in me that's trying to find value in doing rather than finding value in being. That's my battle. I don't know where that, what that means for you. But I know that God considers rest a very holy thing. And I think that it's so important as you come into this holiday season. Because the thing about rest, it, it slows you down enough to see people again. I think there's many of us, the holiday seasons are terribly busy and a very stressful time. Um, but I want to encourage you to take some time to slow down. Enjoy these celebrations coming up. Let me just end with a simple idea. Somebody's telling you how to live your life. And, and it's, it is our culture in this world, or it is the Word of God that is here so that we might live life to the fullest. So I pray we, would, we want to live life like He created it to be lived. That's why I said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Could the ministry team uh, come forward? And hey, if you are tired, if you are working to justify yourself, if you are stressed out, uh, if, you're, if you've been running in the red for so long that you don't know how to change, could you come forward? Uh, if life is just whooping you, if you're dreading Christmas for one reason or another, if you have lost your hope, if you're depressed, if you don't see a way out of your current situation, 
uh, come forward and get prayed for today. All right? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you... Uh, thank you, Father, for your word. Holy Spirit, reveal the roots of our motives and why we're doing what we're doing. Help us to look deeply into ourselves, Lord. Help us to take the antidote for that, which is the love of God in Christ, his death on the cross on our behalf and the gospel. Give us the deep rest that comes from knowing that. Help us to slow down. Help us to see again. Help us to see our children, our spouses, and our parents. Let us see again who we are. Let us see people again and not just a mass of humanity. See beauty again. Restore our natural awe, Lord. Fill our hearts with gratitude in your grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.